I'm Rob Dansman, and this is The Better Semester, where I provide insight and actionable advice to parents of college students. I'm a nationally certified counselor and licensed clinical mental health counselor, specializing in work with college students and their parents to improve mental health, organization, and motivation. Today, I'm talking about depression in college students. I'm going over what depression is and what it isn't and what parents can do to help their struggling college student. I'm also going to give a brief overview of where diagnoses are listed for a painfully long, detailed, and very opinionated look at where diagnoses come from. Check out my blog post, The DSM, 97 Years of History and Controversy. Most of this episode is also pulled from my blog at MotivateCounseling.com, as well as my first book, Insider's Guide to Parenting, How to Solve Messy Problems and Build a Great Family. Depression is a generic name for a category of mental illness, which is often poorly understood and poorly treated. To get started, I want to quickly go over the primary types of depression most often found in college students. Types of depression include the following. Major depressive disorder. This is characterized by severe symptoms that interfere with a student's ability to work, sleep, study, eat, and enjoy life. An episode can occur only once in a student's lifetime, but more often students have multiple episodes. I won't go into all the criteria details for this one, but the important thing with diagnosing is that the student has five or more criteria from a list of nine and includes a few other symptoms. One important thing I also want to point out is that major depressive disorder transcends nearly all life domains. It almost doesn't matter how much someone used to like something or how stimulating an event is or used to be. This type of depression makes it nearly impossible to experience joy and satisfaction. Next, persistent depressive disorder, or also referred to as dysthymia. A depressed mood that lasts for at least two years. A student diagnosed with persistent depressive disorder, or dysthymia, may have episodes of major depression along with periods of less severe symptoms, but symptoms must last for at least two years. Next, psychotic depression. This is actually a subtype of major depressive disorder. It occurs when a student has a severe depression plus some form of psychosis, such as having disturbing false beliefs or break with reality, what we refer to as delusions, or hearing or seeing upsetting things that others cannot hear or see, also referred to as hallucinations. Psychotic depression requires immediate medical care and treatment. Treatment usually involves antidepressant and antipsychotic medication, after which therapy can be way more effective. Your son or daughter may only need the antipsychotic medication for a short period of time. Research has also found that electroconvulsive therapy can help treat depression with psychotic symptoms. Next, seasonal affective disorder, or SAD. This is characterized by the onset of depression during the winter months, when there is less natural sunlight. The depression generally lifts during spring and summer. SAD may be effectively treated with light therapy, but nearly half of those with SAD do not get better with light therapy alone. Antidepressant medication and psychotherapy can reduce SAD symptoms, either alone or in combination with light therapy. If natural light from outside exposure is not an option, a light box can be effective. 
The advisability and timing of using a lightbox should be really carefully reviewed since increasing exposure too fast or using the lightbox for too long each time may actually induce manic symptoms if the college student has bipolar disorder. I've put some of this info on lightboxes in the show notes below. Next up, bipolar disorder. Bipolar, or BPD, is technically different from depression. The reason it's included in this list is that I don't have a separate episode for it, and students with bipolar disorder often experience episodes of extreme low moods, or depression. A person or student with bipolar disorder also experiences extreme high moods, called mania. There are four types of bipolar. First is bipolar 1 disorder. This is the most often seen bipolar disorder with manic episodes that last at least a week, or with manic episodes that are so severe that the person needs immediate hospital care. Usually, depressive episodes occur as well, typically lasting at least two weeks. Episodes of depression with mixed features, like having depression and manic symptoms at the same time, are also possible. Next one is bipolar 2 disorder. We see this showing up as a pattern of depressive episodes and hypomanic episodes, which is basically abnormally elevated mood, energy, or activity level, but not the full-blown manic episodes as we see with bipolar 1. Next is cyclothymic disorder. This type of bipolar is characterized by numerous periods of hypomanic symptoms as well as numerous periods of depression symptoms, lasting for at least two years, though less for teens. However, the symptoms do not meet the diagnostic requirements for a hypomanic episode and a depressive episode. The last one, number four, for bipolar, is bipolar disorder NOS, which stands for not otherwise specified, and related disorders. This category is more of an uncategory. It's the quote-unquote, we're not really sure what to categorize this label because the symptoms don't match the three categories listed before this. It's not used very often, and since it's not very helpful from an intervention perspective, I don't often see it listed. Next up, moving away from bipolar, is adjustment disorder, or also known as stress response syndrome. Although adjustment disorder is categorized in the DSM-5 under trauma, and stress-related disorders, I'm including it in my list of depression diagnoses since there are so many similarities and a lot of interventions that are effective for both. Adjustment disorder is a short-term condition that happens when a college student has significant difficulty managing or adjusting to a specific stressor, such as a major life change, loss, or an event. It's defined by the development of emotional or behavioral symptoms in response to a specific stressor or stressors occurring within three months of the onset of the stressor or stressors. These symptoms or behaviors are clinically significant as evidenced by one or both of the following, either marked distress that is out of proportion to the severity or intensity of the stressor, taking into account the external context and the cultural factors that might influence symptom and severity and presentation, or significant impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Now, 
In 2013, the name adjustment disorder was actually changed to stress response syndrome because people with stress response syndrome often have some of the symptoms of clinical depression, such as tearfulness and feelings of hopelessness and loss of interest in work or other activities, adjustment disorder is sometimes informally called situational depression as well. I still like the term adjustment disorder. Another one that is not perfectly aligned with the depressive disorders is PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. This is another diagnosis that's not categorized under those depressive disorders, but I still think it's important to examine it here since there's a lot of symptomology overlap. Some symptoms of depression and PTSD overlap very well, and you can have both conditions at the same time. Some, but not all, cases of depression can follow a traumatic event like an illness or a really painful breakup. Some of the ways the two conditions are similar also include trouble sleeping, trouble keeping focused, lack of interest or pleasure in things they used to enjoy, irritability or bad temper, and finally, emotional detachment from other people. As you'll hear next, the symptoms of PTSD have a lot in common with depression, as I mentioned before. Signs of PTSD might pop up a month or so after the event that sets it off, or even more diabolically, they may not come on for years. PTSD symptoms fall into several categories or groups. The first group is unwanted memories. They might keep remembering what happened, even though it upsets them. They might have flashbacks as if they're reliving the event or events. They might have an emotional or physical reaction when something reminds them of the stressor. Next category is avoidance. They might try to keep from thinking about or talking about what happened. They may also try to stay away from the people, places, or activities that remind them of the event or the stressors. Next category is negative thoughts and moods. They might be down on themselves or other people or just generally on the world. They may feel detached from other people, hopeless, and emotionally numb. The final category for PTSD is changes in emotional and physical reactions. They could be easily startled or frightened. They may always be on guard, what I refer to as being hypervigilant. They may do self-destructive things like drinking too much or driving too fast. They may also have trouble sleeping or concentrating. Next, I want to talk about some misconceptions of depression. Let's move away from the types of depression and talk about what depression isn't. Depression is not when we feel sad because our pet died. Depression is not when we feel down because we got fired from a job or did really bad on a test. By asking a few questions, we can determine if a student's feelings are more serious and likely meet criteria for a diagnosis. Is their emotional state affecting their schoolwork, friendships, and sports? Is it related to a specific event, like they got dumped, or is it unattached and seems to come out of nowhere? Is it a part of their personality, like they have a negative outlook on all things, or is it counter to how they normally are? If their negative emotions last for more than a few months and are keeping them from an otherwise typical academic experience, typical social functioning, and decent overall health, they probably have some form of depression. 
I look for a general sense of how long the student has had symptoms and what parts of their life have been impacted. Okay, so what exactly causes depression? There are 10 factors that contribute to the onset or escalation of depression. They include number one, genetics, number two, developmental, number three, lifestyle, number four, circadian rhythm, number five, any addictions, number six, nutrition, number seven, exposure to toxic substances, number eight, social or complicated grief, number nine, maybe a medical condition, and number 10, a prefrontal lobe issue or neurological condition. Depression can also be caused by really bad events that happen to us and are never truly processed properly. Our brains use a sophisticated defense mechanism to protect us from perceived threats. When we experience a trauma, for example, a car accident, death of a loved one, our brain sometimes creates an overcompensation of protection. There's no actual threat to us, but psychologically we start building walls or moats, or cannons, or you get the point. Most of us experience grief and loss in typical ways. We get sad when someone dies. We think about the good times. We feel regret for what we never talked about, and we consider a future that doesn't include that person. But over time, our brain slowly separates the feelings from our thoughts about the person. We can remember that loved one without crying. We still feel about sad, but it decreases over time. When depression is triggered from events like a death, our brain don't let go and don't allow the separation of thoughts and feelings. The sadness doesn't decrease. It starts negatively impacting other areas of life, what therapists refer to as life domains, as I've cited before. A life domain is a category of our life. Life domains include school or work, family, social, and self-wellness. Okay, when should you worry? Some of these are obvious. Some are more clinical and not so obvious. And some are just plain contradictory. But that's the nature of an illness we barely understand and have even less understanding of what causes it. Sleeping more is a key factor. Either sleeping a longer amount each night or a significant change in the pattern of how they sleep is something to keep aware of. Maybe they're staying up later. It's not uncommon for those with depression to not be able to fall asleep as their mind races about the bad things in their life. It's like they are mentally reliving one or more bad events. Sometimes they're watching more TV or gaming more. It's the entertainment junk food we reach for when the world is awful to us. It's not unusual to find someone binging more than usual, of course, on TV series, since it's a long, engaging, and passive way to fill one's time. They're also more likely to eat more. When we feel depressed, all those good self-control mechanisms shut down. It's pretty typical to see those with depression vacuum up anything easy and comforting like junk food. Plus, sugar and tasty but nasty foods release brain chemicals that make us feel good for a bit and in the short term. Refined sugar actually increases depression along with deleterious effects on metabolism and chronic health conditions. Now, contradictorily, sometimes people eat less. Here's one of our contradictions. 
On the other hand, some students who experience depression have their stomachs turn off or they intentionally restrict eating, almost as a way to get control over something in their lives. Food seems to lose its flavor. There's even research that has found repeatedly that depression alters our sense of smell and taste. Some students may start using or increase use of substances. I'm not just talking about weed. I'm talking here about traditional drugs as much as I'm talking about things that can have subtle impacts like NyQuil or sleep meds or Benadryl. Some may go for chemical depressants, while others reach for stimulants like caffeine, Adderall, Concerta, Vyvanse, or illegal drugs like cocaine, which is more common at college than parents would imagine. Now, what can parents do about this? If your son or daughter is probably depressed, or you suspect they're depressed, based on the info I've provided today, here's some things you can do to help. First, talk with them. Just like with suicide, talking about depression with someone that's depressed will not make them more depressed. Validating how they feel and letting them know you see them hurting can often be a good starting position. Here are a few ways to start a conversation about depression. And these are all in quotation marks, by the way. I have been feeling concerned about you lately. Recently, I've noticed some differences in you and wondered how you're doing. I wanted to check in with you because you haven't seemed yourself lately. Some of those may sound really cheesy, but it's a starting point, and it lets your son or daughter know that someone sees them. Here are some questions you can ask. When did you begin feeling this way? Did something happen that made you start feeling this way? How can I best support you right now? Have you thought about getting help? Next, what you can say that actually helps. You are not alone in this. I'm here for you. You may not believe it now, but the way you're feeling will change. I may not be able to understand exactly how you feel, but I care about you and I want to help. Next thing that you can do is help them get professional help. Do everything in your power to get your depressed kiddo to the help he or she needs. You can help by encouraging them to see a therapist get help finding a treatment facility, or take them to a doctor's appointment. Just like with many other issues we've discussed, I've had countless free consults where parents brought in their son or daughter, and we talk through what's going on and what we can all do to start a healing process. This is also the time to contact your son or daughter's Counseling and Psychological Services Office, or CAPS. I have a whole episode on using CAPS earlier in the season, so I won't go into details, but CAPS is another place to start trying to get help. Though you won't be able to set up the appointments for your student, CAPS may be helpful in coaching you through how they can access CAPS quickly. Next, follow up on treatment. If a doctor prescribes medication, make sure your kiddo is taking it as directed. Be aware of possible side effects and be sure to notify the physician if they seem to be getting worse or something strange is happening. It often takes three weeks or sometimes longer for antidepressants to start working. 
It also takes persistence to find the medication or therapy that's right for a particular student. Next, don't be afraid to be proactive. Those experiencing depression often don't believe they can be helped, so you may have to be more proactive at offering assistance. Saying, call me if you need anything, is too vague. Don't wait for your son or daughter to call you or even to return your calls. Drop by, call again, text them, invite them out. Next, do some cheerleading. Encourage positive lifestyle changes, such as a healthy diet, plenty of sleep, and getting out in the sun or into nature for at least 30 minutes each day. Exercise is also extremely important as it releases endorphins and relieves stress and promotes emotional well-being. Next, make a safety plan. If your kiddo talks about hurting themselves or you suspect they might, help him or her develop a set of steps they promise to follow during a suicidal crisis. Also include contact numbers for the person's doctor or therapist, as well as friends and family members who will help in an emergency. Next up, long-term support. Depression is not like a cold that folks just shake off in a week or two. Continue your support over the long haul. Even after the initial signs of depression have passed, check in with your son or daughter regularly, periodically checking in. Just like someone recovering from drug addiction, a student recovering from depression may seem fine on the outside, but be quietly struggling. So don't give in to a false sense of healthfulness. If you suspect a loved one is depressed, get some professional guidance on how to proceed. This episode is a broad overview and gives you some strategies, but it is certainly not a replacement for the stabilizing and long-term support needed. Okay, in summary, the most effective strategies for students with most types of depression include consistent high-quality sleep, nutrient-dense foods, outside exercise and exposure to sunlight, regular social contact, regular therapy, and possibly the use of antidepressant medications. Depression is terrible for students, and sometimes even worse for their parents, who may be hundreds of miles or several time zones away. But with the right combination of engaged supports, your son or daughter doesn't have to suffer through the semester. Okay, folks, hope this helps you understand more about depression in college students. That's it for this episode. For more information, check out my blog at motivatecounseling.com or my two books on Amazon. Just search for my name, Rob Dansberg.